This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer. Now coming up later in the show, Winston Churchill. It has been truly said, I think, that he he would be regarded today as the most interesting failure of early 20th century British politics. That's the prominent British author, Geoffrey Wheatcroft. He tries to make a reckoning with the great wartime leader, not just with Churchill's life and legacy, but also with what he calls the long shadow he still casts. And later on, a tribute to the great Australian cartoonist, Bill Leake. But first, Myanmar. The choreography of the coup was horribly familiar to many in Myanmar. First, the pre-dawn arrests of democratically elected leaders, then a communications blackout, and finally, confirmation of a takeover on national TV. There are fears Myanmar is spiralling towards a protracted civil war after a weekend of deadly violence at the hands of the military junta. Gunfire rings out as protesters scatter. In the bloodiest day since the military junta seized power, more than 100 people were killed in 24 hours. Security forces are firing indiscriminately and no one is safe. They cower behind makeshift barriers, but the shooting is relentless. And yet they come onto the streets day after day, determined to fight for the democracy they voted for. Well, it's been a year now since the military coup in Myanmar. The elected Aung San Suu Kyi and many of her supporters, including the Australian Sean Tunnell, they've been detained and imprisoned. The death toll mounts and the country spirals downwards. Now, to reflect on the 12 months since the military takeover and to assess the current situation and what the future might hold, I'm joined by Nicholas Farrelly. He's Professor and Head of Social Sciences at the University of Tasmania. He was previously director of the Myanmar Research Centre at the Australian National University. Nicholas, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again, Tom. And Amanda Hodge is the Australian newspaper's Southeast Asia correspondent. She's based in Jakarta. Amanda has lived and worked in Asia for more than a decade, covering social and political upheaval from Afghanistan to East Timor. Amanda, great to be with you again. Hey, Tom, how are you doing? Very good. Now, Amanda, let's start with you. You've been following the events in Myanmar closely. Just remind us what's happening, uh, what's been happening since the military took over this time last year. Mm. So um, for those who've been following, of course, the the coup happened in the early hours of February 1, 2021. Um, It sort of took people by surprise, but there'd been a lot of talk about the military preparing to move on the government of Aung San Suu Kyi, which had just won a second election with an overwhelming majority. And what that majority had meant is that the military's proxy um, party had lost many seats. And that was obviously bad news for the military, which likes to keep a very uh, close hand on, on, on a, you know, the tiller in, in Myanmar. Um, what the military had not bargained on was the enormous resistance that sprung immediately to this coup. Well, you know, within a couple of days at least, people were pretty shell-shocked, but then um, 
within a few weeks, hundreds of thousands and then millions of people were striking across the country. Um, there was a civil disobedience movement that quickly arose, led by doctors and public servants. Hundreds of thousands of people quit their jobs. Many have not returned to those jobs a year on. Um, people stopped paying their state taxes. That is still the case. Um, the government, the, the, the junta rather, has struggled and still struggles to exert its authority across the country and does not control large swathes of the country. It has not been able to bring um, the situation back to normal in even the city areas, although there is a sort of tense new normal in, in cities like, um, like Yangon. Um, but what has happened in recent months which changes things quite considerably, is that an urban militia has sprung up out of this previously non-violent civil disobedience movement. That is growing. It is coordinating with uh, long-running ethnic armed insurgencies across the country, and it's becoming a more organised um, resistance, armed resistance, and that means more violence and more chaos in Myanmar, which is nobody really wants. Okay, so the coup prompted outrage across most of the world and fierce resistance across Myanmar, but the protests were crushed by the military. A 10-year experiment in democracy building, that's been reversed. Nicholas Farrelly. Yeah, that's right, Tom. And I think Amanda's summary here is a wonderful starting point for this uh, conversation. It allows us to understand just how much has changed over the past 12 months. While, of course, things in Myanmar before the coup were imperfect in, in so many respects, um, particularly, as your listeners will recall, uh, the appalling treatment of the Rohingya Muslim minority along the border with Bangladesh. Um, but conditions have deteriorated starkly in all parts of the, the country. The economy has gone off the cliff. Uh, Foreign investors, understandably, are rushing towards the exits um, and the situation in terms of armed conflict around Myanmar is probably uh, more complex and more intense than it has been uh, in living memory. Um, those new militia organisations that Amanda mentioned that are now causing strife across urban Myanmar and in a wide range of the Ma Buddhist majority rural areas are a, a totally new proposition when it comes to this military regime's counterinsurgency operations. And it looks like they're having a really hard time bringing it back under control. And as we speak on Thursday, this is when this exchange is being pre-recorded, as we speak, the, the Australian academic and the Aung San Suu Kyi economics advisor, Professor Sean Turnell, he's still in prison. Now, there was a mistaken report earlier this week that he might be freed. It wasn't the case, but of course, hopes remain high. He might be released soon. Amanda, what can you tell us at this stage? So that was Han Sen that came out on Monday and said quite confidently to reporters in, um, in Cambodia, um, Han Sen being Cambodian PM, that he'd spoken to Min Online, the Junta leader, and that uh, Sean Turnell, he had assured him that Sean Turnell was going to be released and that he now understood that Turnell had been released. Um, now, that is important because Hun Sen is, is the new rotating chair of ASEAN, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations. Uh, the world believes it's ASEAN's responsibility to pull Myanmar back into line. It hasn't been able to do so yet, but Hun Sen obviously wants to make progress this year. It's two authoritarian leaders talking to each other. The fact that Hun Sen, uh. even when he pulled back, he had to obviously retract what he'd said because Sean Turnell clearly had not been released. 
But even his his retraction um, suggested that it was going to happen soon. And everyone who's been watching this case, who has any um, involvement in it, um, read it the same way, which is Hun Sen knows what's going to happen. He jumped the gun. But mm. that sometime soon, very soon, Sean Turnell will be released. And all we're really waiting for is for uh, the state, or the junta rather, to um, convict Aung San Suu Kyi of um, breaching state secrecy laws. And where does the federal government sit in here? I mean, how has, what, what kind of pressure has Canberra brought to bear? Amanda. We don't know. Look, we don't know what Canberra is doing behind the scenes, but it is not. The, the criticism, the very wide criticism, is that it has not done enough openly uh, to push the junta on, on Sean Turnell. Um, sure. Our key allies, Europe, US, Canada, the UK, have imposed rounds and rounds and rounds of targeted sanctions that target Min Lang himself, who is the junta leader, all of his um, senior commanders, plus the military-linked businesses and military-linked businessmen. Uh, Australia has taken the view, I think, that that is a, a dangerous proposition that we need to, you know, work the backroom channels. Um, but it's an interesting contrast with what the US did. Now, the US had a, uh, a journalist, a US journalist, Danny Fenster, who was also uh, detained uh, on incitement charges. And he, uh, he was released last November after he was convicted, despite the fact that, um, that the US has imposed these sanctions over and over again. One difference is that they had Bill Richardson, a, a veteran US diplomat, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, clearly negotiating on their behalf, though he was very, uh, he was very quick to say he, he wasn't working for the government. He was in there as the envoy. Um, working on this. And in recent weeks, we've heard um, more calls from within Australia for the Australian government to appoint our own envoy, um, you know, to advocate for Sean Turnell's release. It may be that's not necessary now because, you know, there is this expectation he could be released as early as Saturday, which is Union Day, and it's a traditional day for releasing prisoners. Yeah, well, Sean Turnell, whom you know, Nicholas, he's just one supporter of Aung San Suu Kyi to feel the wrath of the military. Now, let's talk about the Nobel Peace Prize laureate. She won Myanmar's November 2020 democratic election in a landslide. We talked about this a year ago, Nicholas. But now Aung San Suu Kyi, she faces numerous charges uh, ranging from the disturbing to the absurd. What's she been accused of and what sort of jail time can she expect? Nicholas Farrelly. Yeah, thanks very much, Tom. And just to, to highlight a point that Amanda's made, we, we all want to see Sean Turnell and the thousands of others who've been locked up by this new military government released at the earliest possible opportunity. And I think we're all hopeful, given recent events, uh, that uh, Sean may be able to return home to his family soon. When it comes to Aung San Suu Kyi and many, many others, I think the prospects of such release are quite dim. Uh, the Myanmar military regime has made it clear that they are prepared um, to line up a, a series of charges against uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and some of her uh, close lieutenants. Uh, as you suggested, Tom, there's a bit of absurdity here. Um, as has been the habit of Myanmar military regimes over the years, they tend to, to pick on what might appear to be um, uh, unemployment, 
unimportant or even petty issues uh, like, for instance, the ownership of unregistered walkie-talkies or what have you. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi has, of course, been working her way uh, step by step through um, the, the various legal mechanisms uh, that the uh, that the regime has put in front of her. Um, they are talking about having an election, um, perhaps in the next couple of years, um, which you'd have to guess will be stewarded very firmly um, by the senior general and some of the other top military players. They'll be looking to exclude uh, Aung San Suu Kyi, the National League for Democracy, and similarly minded groups for as long as they possibly can. They've, of course, seen the experience uh, in other military dictatorships and authoritarian regimes around Southeast Asia. And I suppose what they're betting uh, is that the world will ultimately lose interest in Aung San Suu Kyi and in that mm. November 2020 election triumph that you mentioned and that Myanmar will be able to revert to the, the old style of strongman rule, which, of course, we continue to see playing out in different formats elsewhere in Southeast Asia. On Radio National, this is Between the Lines. I'm Tom Switzer, and my guests for this discussion about Myanmar and the one-year anniversary since the military coup, Nicholas Farrelly from the University of Tasmania and Amanda Hodge. She's the Australian's Southeast Asia correspondent. Amanda, you've covered this in great detail for the Oz over the last year. I mean, do you think, in hindsight, I mean, could the international community have done anything differently to change this dire situation? Well, not while um, China and Russia hold veto in the UN Security Council. Mm. Um, that has been, you know, obviously a major impediment. Um, like I said, uh, some of our major allies have imposed targeted sanctions, but they have limited impact. Uh, they they certainly send the message that um, people are, you know, the governments aren't pleased with Myanmar. They don't support the junta. Um, there's been talk about this um, right to protect clause, um, whether that, you know, whether that could be imposed here in Myanmar and, and some sort of peacekeeping force be sent in. Uh, but actually this junta is not playing by the rule book in any, in any mm. way. It's it, it not, it, you know, Min Lying is not acting rationally. So um, the best that could be hoped for is that we can get a humanitarian corridor in and wedge the junta into into talks. Um, that hasn't happened yet. We're relying on ASEAN to do that. And ASEAN, um, this 10-nation association of Southeast Asian nations, has not been a particularly effective body um, well, that, over they, its they got non-interference, right? Isn't that their motto, non-interference? That is one of their founding principles, is non-interference in the domestic affairs of other states, of, of, of member states. That they have, they have set aside to some degree with Myanmar. They've already pushed themselves beyond their comfort zone on this. Um, by excluding Min Online from um, a past leaders meeting, the annual leaders meeting, which was very controversial, but not enough. I mean, far from enough. You know, there's a lot more that could be done yeah. um, to wedge Myanmar. But it, 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 whether that would actually have an impact on the junta is another matter because they they were content to be a hermit nation for almost half a century. Um, and, and, and the military has made it clear that it doesn't really care how much this impacts on its civilian population, as long as it can maintain power. And given everything that Amanda Hodge has said about the junta and uh, where things stand for this uh, Southeast Asian nation of nearly, what, 55 million, Nicholas, I mean, where do you see things in Myanmar in a year from now? 
That's a big question, Tom. We can see right now on the ground um, the hundreds of thousands of people who have newly committed themselves to armed insurrection against the military regime. Uh, what that means in practice over the next 12 months is that those groups are going to be put under enormous pressure. Of course, uh, the generals in Naypyidaw are looking to stamp them out. Um, they're using air power um, in an increasingly heavy-duty fashion. Uh, that means uh, combat helicopters and, and a variety of other aircraft that are being um, brought to bear against a range of often very vulnerable positions, uh, including uh, civilian locations. Um, you could imagine that over the next year, Tom, we're going to see um, all of this push, push that's now into the shove phase, um, moving into to something different. I wouldn't rule out um, the prospect that there will be a revolutionary outcome here and that some way, somehow, this new constellation of groups that are so actively opposed to the entrenchment of military power will eventually prevail. If that was to occur, it's likely to be very messy. And of course, um, it's worth bearing in mind that that wouldn't be the end of the story. There'd be all sorts of other negotiations and compromises required before Myanmar could get itself back on track to being a, a somewhat democratic, relatively inclusive society where the economy can be looking after the livelihoods of those 55 million people. So there's a lot of work to be done, and I fear uh, that it's going to be a really tough year ahead for the Myanmar people. A disturbing story, uh, which will continue to follow. Nicholas Farrelly, Amanda Hodge, thanks so much for being on RN. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having us, Tom. That was Nicholas Farrelly, Professor and Head of Social Sciences at the University of Tasmania, and Amanda Hodge, the Australian newspaper's Southeast Asia correspondent. Coming up next, a critical reappraisal of Winston Churchill. That whatever happened in France would make no difference to the resolve of Britain and the British Empire to fight on if necessary for years, if necessary alone. We have therefore in this island today a very large and powerful... Well, in the early 1960s, a little boy who happened to be Winston Churchill's grandson, he asked, Grandpa, is it true that you're the greatest man alive? And the former British Prime Minister's response? Yes, it is. Now bugger off. <laughs> Now, in his way, Sir Winston Churchill, my next guest says, has been saying that to all of us ever since, essentially daring us to challenge the verdict. And let's face it, Churchill, he was the most famous man of his age. According to A.J.P. Taylor, Churchill was, quote, the saviour of his country. That's when he became Prime Minister in 1940. Man of the century, as one book title has it. The greatest Briton in a BBC poll 20 years ago. And since his death in 1965, Churchill has continued to loom larger than life across Western public discourse. However, Churchill, according to my next guest, well, he was a deeply flawed character whose personal ambition would cloud his political judgment. And Churchillism, along with the American cult of Churchill, that's had dramatic and all too often lamentable practical consequences. How so? Geoffrey Wheatcroft is one of Britain's leading writers. 
His latest book is called Churchill's Shadow, An Astonishing Life and a Dangerous Legacy. That's published by Penguin. It's available at all good Australian bookstores. He joins us from Bath, England. Hi there, Geoffrey. Welcome back to ABC Radio. Hello, Tom. Good to hear from you. Now, there's no shortage of books about Churchill. I think at the last count, there's about a thousand, and that's not to mention the countless films and television series. How's your thesis different? Well, I have to admit that I, you're right. You're right to say there, that there are very many books. About a hundred years ago, Churchill said, "Far too much is being written and has been written about me," <laughs> and one hesitates to add to that enormous quantity. But I did feel very strongly that even today, and we're now some fifty-six years after his death, uh, fifty-seven, I should say. I'm sorry, innumerate as usual. <laughs> it has been very difficult to make a, a proper assessment of Churchill. And the most um, successful books about him, commercially speaking, tend to be very admiring. And he has entered popular culture in a, an almost bizarre way because representations of him on, uh, in the movies are, have nothing whatever to do with the reality. They are complete fantasies. And he's become... Uh, something larger than a human being. He's become a legendary figure like Robin Hood or someone like you know, who, who may or may not ever have existed. Um, Umberto Eco, the Italian writer, was amused about 20 years ago when he, a survey found that more than a quarter of English schoolchildren thought that Winston Churchill was a fictional character. Well, in a way, that's what he is or what he's become. He's, he stands outside real narrative history as a, a, a strange phenomenon. And I wanted to try to get to grips with this. And I never set out to write, though it's been called a, an indictment of Churchill, my book. I, I never set out to write such a, an indictment, less, still less a character assassination. I was trying to answer some questions. First of all, a great historian put it better than I can, and that is Sir Michael Howard. He himself had served in the Second World War and won the military cross at Salerno as a subaltern in the Coldstream Guards. And he said something which has stayed in my mind ever since I read it. He said, the problem is not, as so many Americans seem to think, why Churchill was ignored for so long, but how it was that a man with such a dubious background and such a disastrous track record could have emerged in 1940 as the saviour of his country. And, and that was the problem I've been grappling with. I don't deny that he was the saviour of his country in 1940. I mean, it's a, almost a statement of the obvious. But it, and until then, he was one of the most disliked and distrusted men in British public life. You make the point that before World War II, so until 1939, Churchill's already very long political career had been what you say, quote, littered with failures and follies. Well, that's true. I mean, if he'd uh, died in 1939, um, it has been truly said, I think, that he would be regarded today as the most interesting failure of early 20th century British politics. I mean, he had had an extraordinary career. He entered Parliament when he was 26, having already either witnessed or served in three, three, four different wars, perhaps rather too many. And he 
entered Parliament as a Tory, but then crossed to the Liberals. He was a cabinet minister, very young. He was Home Secretary. He was First Lord of the Admiralty. Then he was Colonial Secretary. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer. Uh, and yet, it's very difficult to point to his real achievements. I mean, his when I talk about his failures and follies, one of the most conspicuous, which, which uh, of course resonates for Australians, was Gallipoli. And Churchill was not the only author of the Gallipoli campaign, where the Anzacs made their heroic name, but he was one of the chief authors. And uh, he, ever after, continued to insist that it was a brilliant enterprise which was ill-starred and just went wrong. But that's nonsense. I mean, you've really only got to do what, what I've done and many Australians have done, but Churchill never did, which is go to Gallipoli. And when you go there, you see for yourself that it was a completely hopeless campaign. Even if it had succeeded, the original landing, which it didn't in its, in its objectives, it, it, it would, and even if Turkey had been knocked out of the war, it wouldn't have won the war, as Churchill insisted, rather weirdly. And that was typical of his strategical misjudgments, which persisted in the next war. Yes, well, I mean, back to Gallipoli, though. I mean, uh, he was the, the first Lord of the Admiralty, and he, as you say, he helped orchestrate these, you know, disastrous landings at Gallipoli. Now, the Prime Minister Asquith, he brought Churchill into the Cabinet several years before, and he could say brutally about Churchill, quote, Winston is far the most disliked man in my cabinet by his colleagues without a friend or follower in the world, a tragic figure of failure and folly. Jeffrey Wheatcroft. It is an amazing thing for the prime minister to say about one of his own ministers, I mean, his former minister by then, because Asquith said that, I think, in 1916, and Churchill had resigned with great acrimony from the government in the autumn of 1915 in consequence of the failure at Gallipoli. Uh, and he then went off to try and uh, atone by serving as an infantry officer himself. At the age of 40, he commanded a battalion on the Western Front for several months. Um, and yet he still, even then, aroused suspicion and disdain to, to a quite remarkable degree, which has been washed away by the astonishing story of the finest hour in 1940. My guest is the distinguished English author, Geoffrey Wheatcroft. We're talking about Winston Churchill, the wartime prime minister. He was undoubtedly a hero, but his career was characterised by failure. Now, all that changed, Geoffrey, when Churchill defied Hitler in 1940, the darkest hour, that period in 1940 when the Nazis were attacking Britain after they'd conquered and occupied France. Now, this is a very important period in understanding Churchill, this period in his first prime ministership from 40 to 45. Now, Andrew Roberts is obviously one of the most sympathetic biographers of Winston Churchill, past guest on this program. He wrote a very critical review of your book in the London Spectator, but he says you devote only 4% of the book to 1940. Well, I haven't counted up the percentage I've devoted to percentages I've devoted <laughs> to any given subject, but I certainly devote a chapter to 1940. It's, my book isn't meant to be a conventional biography in any way, whatever. It's, it's a reassessment of Churchill, judging his reputation at the time rather than today. Uh, his uh, stand in 1940 was, as almost everyone agrees, 
heroic and remarkable, though he wasn't alone. I mean, he was supported by uh, Neville Chamberlain and Lord Halifax, who had been the great appeasers before September 1939, but who um, deplored the idea of making any kind of agreement with Hitler after Dunkirk and the fall of France. So Churchill expressed with remarkable eloquence what he claimed was, uh, what he said, I hope rightly, was the feelings of the whole country, or, or, or what he later said was uh, a people and a race living around the world. The fact that he defied Hitler in 1940 did not, of course, mean that he defeated Hitler. To, to put it very well, was by Stalin, um, who, on the subject of how the Third Reich was defeated, Stalin said, England provided the time, America provided the money, and Russia provided the blood. And the fact was that, however noble Churchill's stand in 1940 was, there was no way whatever that this little island could have defeated Germany. Yes, well, Jonathan Dimbleby, the former distinguished uh uh, BBC journalist uh, was a guest on this program talking about his book Operation Barbarossa and he makes it very clear that the Soviets played the primary role in defeating Hitler. Now, the lessons of Munich. It's very important to understand the lessons of Munich in understanding Hitler. Appeasement. In his Iron Curtain speech in Fulton, Missouri, this was in 1946, Churchill declared, quote, I saw it all coming and I cried aloud to my fellow countrymen and to the world, but no one paid attention. And he claimed, quote, There was never a war in all history easier to prevent by timely action than the one which has just desolated such great areas of the globe. Now, all this, Geoffrey, helped shape the lessons of Munich, uh, even as early as 1956. Tell us about the Suez Crisis. Well, I'll leave aside the fact that that speech of Churchill's, though very eloquent, was extremely dubious in everything it said. And his claim that the war could have been prevented is highly debatable and obviously can't be proved one way or the other. But the idea that you must never appease another ruler or dictator who is making intransigent demands has dominated our story ever since in my lifetime. Um, and, and a, a very good example was Suez in 1956, when Colonel Nasser, the Egyptian ruler, took over the Suez Canal and expelled the British army. And government under Sir Anthony Eden, who incidentally had resigned in 1938 as foreign secretary in protest against appeasement, and now Eden was um, Sir Churchill's successor as prime minister, and he insisted that we mustn't appease Nasser as Hitler had been appeased before the war. The comparison was absurd, although it was made by absolutely everyone, even at the time. And so there ensued the Suez operation, which was a complete fiasco from the British point of view. Indeed, it did damage British credibility and prestige, but also talking about hurting prestige and credibility of a major power. Look at the United States in Vietnam. Now, here's a quote from Lyndon Johnson. Quote, Everything I knew about history told me that if I got out of Vietnam and let Ho Chi Minh run through the streets of Saigon, then I'd be doing exactly what Chamberlain did in World War II. I'd be giving a big fat reward to aggression. That's Lyndon Johnson, Jeffrey Wycroft. Well, I, that's exactly the point. I mean, you see, almost every, an exaggeration, well, a complete exaggeration, to say that almost every piece of folly 
in the last 75 years or so has stemmed from this idea of Munich and this, this horror of appeasement. We've had Suez. You've just said President Johnson thought that if he didn't increase the American army in Vietnam, he would be appeasing Ho Chi Minh. Uh, and so what had happened was that he enormously stepped up the American war, which led to the greatest defeat in American history. And it goes on and on and on. In 2003, we were told that, uh, by Tony Blair, among others, that we mustn't appease Saddam Hussein because he was the new Hitler. And Blair saw himself as the new Churchill. And we know where that led to in Iraq. Only a few years ago, Senator Ted Cruz, uh, the Texas Republican, said that President Obama's uh, deal over Iran's nuclear weapons program, which in my view, and I'm not alone, was a perfectly sensible one in the circumstances. And Cruz said, this is the worst betrayal since Munich, um, about which a subject about which I suspect Senator Cruz couldn't write 150 words on a piece of paper. And, and yesterday, uh, on television here, I was listening, watching and listening to John Herbst, who used to be the American ambassador to Ukraine, and who said, we mustn't appease Putin. Uh, Mr. Chamberlain was wrong to appease Hitler in 1938. So presumably we're going to fight another war. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, is, it, it is completely incurable, this addiction to the idea of Munich. Yes, well, some uh, Bush administration figures said that Churchill was the first neocon. Well, that was claimed by one of them, and it's an absurd claim. But what is true is that the so-called neoconservatives in Washington made an especially devoted cult of Churchill. I mean, at least two of them had busts of Churchill in their offices. Um, George Bush had a bust of Churchill in the Oval Office, which he liked to stand in front of while quoting Churchill. Benjamin Netanyahu of Israel has a, had a portrait of Churchill in his office. Um, there's a very long catalogue of people who kept portraits or busts of Churchill and it hasn't necessarily done them much good. If you just tuned in, this is Tom Switzer from RN's Between the Lines, and my guest is Geoffrey Wheecroft, author of Churchill's Shadow, An Astonishing Life and a Dangerous Legacy. Geoffrey, uh, there are other examples as well. I think uh, Margaret Thatcher, for instance, uh, she embraced uh, Churchillism, if you like, during the Falklands War in 1982. That was a victory. Uh, you mentioned Iraq, uh, and of course, Tony Blair was a, you know, in his shadow, and you make that very clear. But what about the Brexit referendum in 2016? I was quite struck by the Brexit referendum in the sense that Churchill was actually invoked all too often by both sides. That's quite right. I mean, the, the Brexotics, the Brexiteers, the Leavers, inevitably paraded Churchill's name. Nigel Farage, who is the, uh, I will have to say clever, but demagogic leader of <laughs> the, well, the former UKIP party, the, the, the Brexit party, uh, which it was to all intents, liked nothing more than to be photographed with a pint of beer in one hand a cigarette in the other hand, and a portrait of Churchill behind him. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the invocations of Churchill and, of course, the, the, the Brexit referendum could almost be summed up for some people by a famous cartoon in after Dunkirk by Lowe, who's the great, great cartoonist, who's incidentally a New Zealander by birth. 
and it showed a Tommy on the cliffs of Dover with his rifle beside him and his fist in, shaken in the air and the word alone, very well alone. And we in, in England have been completely amused and baffled ever since by this myth that we fought on alone, which obviously isn't true in itself because we had not only the Commonwealth and Empire, but we had very many other countries supporting us, though not as it happens the United States. Um, a, a, bit of a, a bit of a problem there for the American neocon Churchillians. Yes. And on the other hand, it's true, as you, you were, I think, mentioned that they're on both sides. Yes, the Remainers embraced him as well. Sir Nicholas Soames and the present uh, Duke of Wellington wrote letters to the newspaper saying that their illustrious forebears, the Duke of Marlborough, uh, who was Churchill's forebear and the first Duke of Wellington, and, and Sir Winston Churchill himself, would all mm. have supported remaining in the European Union. Well, actually, they, they didn't know that, and I don't know that, and you don't know no. that. But, but, but everyone felt that to, to win <laughs> an argument, you had to say which side Churchill would be on. It's, it's a, you know, there are some American politicians who, who tell us that they address every political problem with the question, what would Jesus do? Well, <laughs> I don't think that's a particularly good practical approach to politics day to day, but, um, but, but asking what would Winston do is scarcely any better. Yes. Now, there's, there's obviously, and you highlight this point, that, that few now dare speak ill of Winston Churchill, at least political leaders, and uh, the leaders who invoke their idol have ended up making terrible decisions. But is there a danger, Jeff? We, we might, younger people uh, in Britain and indeed around the world might be going the other extreme. Uh, I was struck during the activist campaign in 2020 to tear down statues, uh, Churchill's famous statue outside Westminster. Um, that was attacked. Uh, a racist, we were told, uh, which by today's standards is undoubtedly true, particularly given his views towards uh, India. But what do you make of this campaign to cancel history? After all, isn't Churchill honoured because he saved Britain from a much worse racist in Adolf Hitler? Well, of course he is, and that's why I deplore the idea of removing his statue. I'm not particularly keen on the whole council culture of taking down statues and um, renaming buildings. We cannot go through the whole of history trying to find out what was what the individual failings were of the various historical actors and then try and erase their names from history. I mean, it is, I, I, I'm, I'm opposed to, strongly opposed to this idea of cancellation. Though I am in favour of what the Germans call Vergangenheitsbewältigung, or making a reckoning with the past, which is what in, in my humble way I've tried to do with my book, which is to look seriously and hard at history and at least write about it honestly without trying to undo all of past history, which we can't undo. Yeah, and that brings me to my final question, Geoffrey. Given everything you've just said and your book, and it, and despite the Andrew Roberts Spectator Review and I think a column by a neoconservative in the Washington Post, it's generally been well-received, particularly in the New York Times. But can we ever escape Churchill's shadow? That's the question. Geoffrey Wheatcroft.
Well, at the moment, it doesn't look like it. <laughs> I mean, I've done my, my <laughs> modest best. Um, and the, have you said to my, it's interesting that my book has been better received in America than it has in, here in England. Uh, and it's just possible that the American cult of Churchill, yeah. which is the most extraordinary phenomenon, uh, it might, might just be fading after all the failures that it's led them into. But um, I, I don't at the med- uh, immediately see any sign of an honest reckoning with Churchill yeah. as, as, a, as a real historical figure. If you go to a movie called Lincoln, it's sentimental and hero-worshipping, uh, as you might expect from Steven Spielberg, but, but at least it sticks quite close to historical fact. If you go to a movie called Churchill, which was, came out about four years ago and didn't make much impact, or Darkest Hour, which was a huge success about 1940, they are complete fantasies. There is no pretense whatever that, that, that Churchill is anything other than a, a creature of legend, and you can write anything you like about him and uh, turn him into, uh, just as those English school children thought, and, and his fictional character, and nobody seems to mind trying to get to grips with the historical reality of Churchill remains very difficult. Well, Geoffrey, it's been lovely, as always, to be with you again. Thank you so much for being on Between the Lines. As always, it's very good to talk to you, Tom. That was Geoffrey Weecroft, author of Churchill's Shadow, An Astonishing Life and a Dangerous Legacy, and we'll put the link to the book on our website. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, as a young man, he wanted to become a great landscape artist, the 20th century successor to Arthur Streeton. Then he hoped to be the next Brett Whiteley. Instead, he became a gifted and talented portrait painter. Although he never won the coveted Archibald Prize, Bill Leake did become one of Australia's greatest and perhaps most controversial cartoonist. He died unexpectedly in 2017, and to remember and pay tribute to his friend, journalist Fred Paul is here to talk about his book, Die Laughing, the biography of Bill Leake. It's published by the Institute of Public Affairs. Hi there, Fred. G'day, Tom. Now, Bill Leake, what was your first impression of him? His his reputation preceded him. Uh, He was working at Fairfax when I started at uh, News Corp in Sydney in the uh, mid-90s. And a friend of mine at Fairfax had told me I was working in the wrong company because there was a guy at Fairfax called Bill Leake who kept half the staff amused every day with crude <laughs> antics. <laughs> and, um, and so when he, when he jumped ship to news, I, I'd heard so much about him and he seemed like my kind of guy, a total larrikin. So I just I just waltzed up to him. I was just a lowly sub-editor at The Australian at the time. And I just waltzed up to him and I said, you're Bill Leake, aren't you? You're a, you know a friend of mine. And we shook hands and we remained friends from that moment on. And, and he's transitioned from aspiring serious artists to cartoonists. I mean, how did that happen? It, I mean, it started with uh, Bruce Petty, right? It did. Bill spent formative years in Germany as, a, an, as an aspiring artist. And while he was there achieving moderate success as, a, as an exhibiting artist, his sister 
Lynn sent him a book of Bruce Petty cartoons that mm. Bill just loved. And there's an interesting uh, de- way this developed was he came back to Australia. He did hold one uh, solo exhibition in Sydney. It wasn't particularly successful. And he started thinking, he's, he's actually, his mum said, look, you've always loved cartoons. Why don't you give that a crack? And so he approached the uh, bulletin. And he was he was told by the uh, the um, chief designer there, um, Greg Lin- uh, Lindsay Foyle, um, yes. that uh, that that all the cartoons were freelance, and so Bill started submitting. But he initially didn't realise that cartoonists worked solo. He thought that the cartoonists were actually told by a journalist what to draw, and so the, <laughs> the, the, the art of the, the art of conceiving the cartoon and drawing the cartoon. He thought they were different, and it's actually very interesting because. I speak in the book to Warren Brown, who's the cartoonist for The Telegraph in mm-hmm. Sydney, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. He, he says, and he's very, very persuasive about this, he says that Bill's um, sense of humour was entirely developed. Bill was not naturally funny, according to Warren. And, and Bill was, I mean, you, you knew Bill as well. He was clearly yeah. the funniest man most people have ever met. And yes. according to Warren, his sense of humour was entirely acquired, which is which is fascinating. And I, I, yes. I investigate that in the book as well. I, I was, for the best part of a decade, the opinion page editor of The Oz, and so our main cartoon was the Bill Lee cartoon as always quirky, witty and irreverent. But how did he approach politics and power in those early days when he left the Sydney Morning Herald, I think he said 1994, and then he went across to news? How did he approach politics and power then? Well, he was salivating to get involved. Um, he really, really wanted to become a daily cartoonist. And I spoke to Paul Kelly. He was yeah. editor-in-chief of The Australian at the time. And um, he interviewed Bill uh, over, a, over a, a short period and was uh, wanted to make sure that Bill fitted The Australian. Bill really wanted to join The Australian because he saw it as a good vehicle for his own politics. But I, I raised with Paul, look, you know, Bill was very left in those days when I met Bill in 94. He was seriously left wing. And I said, what made you think that Bill was a good fit for The Australian? And he, he very, very astutely said, look, Bill wasn't so left wing back then. All he really wanted to do was call out the frauds and the elites. And as it turns out, Paul was right. I mean, most people who knew Bill at that time would have just said, oh, look, you know, Bill's just a, a larrikin lefty and, and he can't stand Howard and the coalition and so on. But it turns out that, that Bill applied his, his wit, his savage wit and his, his brilliant caricature to both sides of politics in the end. My guest is Fred Paul. He's author of Die Laughing, the biography of Bill Leake. It's published by the IPA, the Institute of Public Affairs. Uh, Fred, um, you know, many of his lefty friends thought that um, he went through a radical ideological transition while he was at the Australian, and they they, they basically blamed a, a brain injury when he fell off a balcony. Uh, how would yes. you respond to those kind of uh, well, observations? I heard that so many times while I was researching mm. the book. And Bill addressed this while he was alive. He wrote a column for The Australian saying, look, I've been accused. This is after he fell off the balcony in 2000, yep. October 2008 it was. And he did suffer brain damage. And some people attributed his his newfound interest in politics to that. And Bill said, look, you know, if you, if you want to go through my my body of work, you'll notice that in December 2007, I did make a transition. It's the month that Kevin Rudd was elected 
the Prime Minister and the, the government of Australia changed. So, so he beat them to it by 10 months. But the, but the, the interesting observation I'd make about that, Tom, is that when, when uh, Howard was elected in 96, he was uh, drinking that night with, um, with Warren Brown, who was one of his best friends, and Bill was furious that, that Howard had won. And he said, these people are punishers. They just want to punish the working class. And mm. Bill felt that very, very emphatically, whether he was right or not. He, you know, he would have admitted later in life that, that he was wrong. But when uh, Rudd won, he saw them he saw the incoming Labor government not as punishers but as social engineers. And to mm. Bill, who was a classic liberal and a libertarian, these are, the, these are the same things. Let's talk about free speech. This is obviously a key theme of your book. I mean, he, Bill's cartoons with featuring Indigenous Australians, they've perhaps been his most controversial. In 2015, the terror attacks on Charlie Hepto, that office in, yep. uh, in Paris, they, they published cartoons disrespectful of Muhammad. What did Bill Leake do? How did he respond? Oh, well, I, I spoke to Gung, his wife. She was returning home from Thailand as that attack happened. And when she got home, she found Bill almost in tears. Now, Bill had no mm. connections to Charlie Hepto, but he felt a very strong affinity with anyone who stuck their neck out as a cartoonist. Mm. And, and Bill felt it very, very strongly. And within days, he had produced a cartoon depicting the Prophet Muhammad. And, yes. um, and it was in The Australian. The Australian, to its enormous credit, didn't hesitate. And soon afterwards, Bill was told by, by well-informed sources inside um, the federal police that he needed to sell his house and move to a secret location. Wow. And, of course, yeah. at the same time, he was subjected to a lot of criticism from, was it the Human Rights Commission? That's right, yes. Um, well, I mean, just going back to the Indigenous thing that you raised a second ago, the... I mean, the thing about Bill's career, throughout his career, he always sided with the underdog. And mm. throughout his, his, his uh, career, the underdog was always our Indigenous. You know, like, like mm. all Australians, Bill cared deeply about the welfare of our Indigenous people. And so his early cartoons about the Indigenous, especially while Howard was Prime Minister, mm. were, were, were seriously siding with, you know, groups of Aborigines sitting in a camp, you know, with... Howard and one of his ministers coming along and, you know, telling them some great idea and that and, and the, they all look sort of bored and, and, and they've heard it all before. There was one particular cartoon in which Howard was depicted about to bash a couple of um, black mm. fellas and it infuriated Howard. It was one of the most um, mm. controversial mm. moments of his whole career. So uh, towards the end, he, you know, he got into trouble with the Human Rights Commission for a particular cartoon that everyone know, knows now. It's probably the most famous cartoon in Australian yep. history. Yeah, right. What's his name there? And uh, I, I would, it's impossible to say, but I would quite confidently assert that the anguish this caused Bill, and a lot of friends will back me up on this because he's, he spoke openly about it, the anguish that this caused Bill contributed to his heart condition because Bill was, as everyone who knew him knows, Bill was the least racist person you could possibly imagine. And for such a huge swathe of the Australian population to be told, Bill Leake is a racist, it disturbed him to the very core of his being. Let's end on an optimistic note here. Somewhere, surely, Fred, 
he'd be very proud of his son, Johannes Leek, who's the lead illustrator, cartoonist for The Australian Today, correct? Oh, mate, would he ever. Johannes, yeah. Yeah, I just, I just, you know, I've known Johannes since he was a little kid and uh, he, he never really um, uh, sort of enthusiastically wanted to follow in his, uh, in his dad's footsteps. He, he went to Julian Ashton Art School just as his dad had. I mean, he followed in the same uh, sort of um, profession but never wanted to be all that much like him. And, you know, like Bill was bombastic and, and loud and a real extrovert, whereas Giannis is, is rather quiet and he's, you know, he's a thoughtful young man. And he's, you know, he is just as funny as Bill. He was brought up, you know, by one of the funniest men who's ever lived. But he, he's just as funny. But I, what I love about Johannes is that his cartoons are far more nuanced than most of Bill's were. Bill was, Bill just loved to be you know, sort of his cartoons were often quite violent and, and, you know, overtly sexual and all sorts of stuff. And, and whereas Johannes just picks absolutely um, really uh, intricate aspects of nuance and absurdity, and he absolutely nails them. I'm really impressed. Yeah. Well, the book is called Die Laughing. It's a biography of Bill Leake and the author is the journalist, Fred Paul. Fred, Thanks so much for being on ABC Radio today. Oh, it's a pleasure, mate. Thanks for having me. Well, that's it for the show. And remember, if you'd like to hear our past episodes, including our recent Ukraine debate with Professors John Mearsheimer and Catherine Stoner, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. This is Tom Switzer from ABC's Radio National. It's always lovely to have your company and I hope you can tune in again next week. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.